Hey team, it's Ando here. 2022 is a big year for Australian rugby, and we at Pick and Drive Rugby want to be in the thick of it, but we need your support. We want to attend post-match press conferences to ask your questions. We need more interviews with players and coaches to give you the insights that you want into the game they play in heaven. And we want better recording equipment to create a superior listening experience for you. If you like what we do, and let's be honest, even if you don't, please consider getting involved and sending us a tip. All donations will be put straight back into the podcast. We do this for love, not money, but every little bit counts. So please go to ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby. You can give us $1, you can give us 5 whatever is within your budget, we would be incredibly appreciative for. Thank you for your support. Let's get back to the pod. Wade Cooper, for the win, it's on its way, it's on its way, it's gone, Wade Cooper is the man. Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast, we're diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby, we're real family friendly and positive, so get involved. Get involved. My name's Ando, with me is Mitch as per normal, and on a special Sunday evening recording, we have Michael Atkinson from hashtag Atco Knows. How are you, Atco? Uh, I was really good until you brought up that hashtag, but uh, now, nah, Ando, Mitch, um, pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Mate, it's something that's going to stick with you within the rugby community for a while now. I don't think you're getting away from that. And you got James, Jimmy Hall to thank for that. Yes, I do. Um, he was on your podcast, I'm aware. Um, did he take credit for it? Because he deserves credit. He's tried to push it <laughs> on to me, but it was 100% his creation. Well, and, we'll have to get him back yeah. on and question him on that one. Uh, we didn't actually yeah. ask him about that, although we are very interested. The challenge was laid down to you when we were chatting about um, which, which episode is going to get the most listens or the most uh, most hits. So we'll have to see if you can trump the very impressive numbers we got for Jimmy Hall. <laughs> Do people want to listen to a journo or a former Wallabies captain? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question, isn't it? So we'll find <laughs> out. Um, well, Mitch, why don't you really quickly take us through the results of our tip, internationals tipping comp before you fire a few quick fire questions at Akko? Fantastic. So we have um, Cave Quake has taken out top spot this week um, on two, 22 and a half points, taking out the yellow cap. We've then got Ant Man in second place on 19.75 points. And uh, this is a hard name to pronounce. Scope Joby Brumby's fan. Scopey Scopey Brumby's fan uh, on nineteen points. So, well done to everyone there. And we this competition will continue rolling as the internationals keep coming. So, probably not too late to join if you're still interested. So do um, get involved. Ando, I know you're not in the comp at the moment. Yeah, see, I thought it was just for the, this like three match series. And so I missed the first week and I was like, well, I'm done. <laughs> um, so maybe I should register. My bad. Um, Mitch, take us through the questions. Bye. Fantastic. So thank you again, Echo, for giving us your time this evening. Uh, what does no an average day in the life of Michael Atkinson look like? Um, starts very early because I've got uh, three kids under five, three boys, um, almost five, just turned three and, and nearly one. So. They're usually up pretty early um, and once I'm organised and get them out the door, it's off to work for me. And generally speaking, a day in the life of um, my journo life is sort of get to work around 9, 9.30 or like that's either go to the office or go directly to a job if there's a 
media opportunity with a team training and a player speaking or coach speaking or something like that. Um, and I tend to spend a third to a half of the day out on the road, um, gathering stories, interviews, that sort of stuff. And then it's back to the office to sort of put it all together, write, produce. Um, I don't edit or anything like that, but you give the editors the, the vision cues and that sort of thing and, and what you want um, without going into too much detail of the programs and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's probably about a 60, 40 split, I reckon of um, 60 being in the office, 40 being out on the road um, It changes a little bit day to day, but that's it. That's, that's kind of um, probably the general breakup of a day. And I just, I like that variety. And then there's a couple of days of um, the week, Saturday and Sunday, where I also sit on the desk and present the sport. So um, I just like having that, you know, there's just the variation in my day. I might start the day at Broncos training, come back to the office, head out, go to cricket or the Reds, something like that, and then come back to the office and, and plug away for the last couple of hours. So it's the variation that I really enjoy. Do you get much downtime? It sounds like you're going 24-7. Seven days a week, mate. Uh, yeah, not really because I guess outside of like my main um, bread being uh, as a sports reporter for nine, I do a fair bit of like emceeing stuff, like emceeing events and like corporate events and dinners and lunches and stuff like that. And then <clears throat> obviously family takes up a bit of time. And then when I get the chance, I'm, um, I get to be on some of the rugby broadcast stuff too, which I really, really, <clears throat> excuse me, really, really enjoy. So yeah, no, it's pretty full on, but, um, uh, it's just the, the period of my life I'm in where I'm trying to make things work and make ends meet for my family. So. Um, but I prefer that than sitting around twiddling my thumbs and being bored. For sure, for sure. And I think hearing that, we appreciate your time this evening even more. Oh, yeah. What's um, no, no, you're right. What's probably the toughest part of being a journalist? Uh, it's probably, I can't really compare it to what it used to be like, but I get the sense that in the modern day, there's a lot of distrust towards the media, so towards journalists. Um and it, it's kind of that's one of the hardest parts is just trying to prove to people that while you are trying to get a story and get insight, like there's nothing grubby about what mm. you're doing. Like, and I mean, generally speaking, in sport, like a lot of it's um, not grubby. You know what I mean? And um, there are elements of media that is maybe a bit like that, and there are elements of sports media that are maybe a bit like that at times, for sure. But majority of us just love sport, want to report on good stories in sport. You got to take the good with the bad as always. Um, but yeah, it's trying to sort of just change people's opinions so that they will just open up and talk to you about something. And, um, I just find in my personal life, um, people know what I do for a living. They're sometimes, uh, a bit guarded, which is mm. fascinating to watch. Like they immediately think like anything you say will be quoted. <laughs> and just, that's obviously not how it works, but, yeah. um, yeah, that's probably the most challenging part because at the end of the day, what makes um, a really good journalist really good is, um, having good connections with people and having good networks and building rapport. And, um, if people straight away don't trust you because they have a tainted view of the media or journalists, like you've got to start breaking that down. So that's probably the hardest part. Yeah, for sure. And if you ever feel like quoting us, we're more than happy for you to take that. <laughs> Um, as probably, the probably rugby... not the comments at the start of the uh, pod that we weren't recording. Yeah, let's maybe not. start. <laughs> keep it on air. And, um, and... <laughs> but no, um, you have worked with the Queensland Reds in the past. During yep. your time there, who did you find to be the biggest pest? 
Um, well, I know James Horwell is um, a subscriber to the podcast, so I'm going to say James Horwell. <laughs> um, with a nickname like Big Kev because he was always excited. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, he, no, Kev's a great man. He could be a pest when he wanted to, um, but generally it was just because he wanted to give you a wind-up. I, I worked there as the team manager during a period when um, Eddie Quirk, Liam Gill and, and Jake Schatz were all there together and Nick Frisbee. And I've known Nick for a very long time. And those four were all kind of like thick as thieves and around, I don't know how old they were at the time, like 20, early 20s. And, you know, just naturally being blokes in their early 20s, they were very pestilent. So they were fun <laughs> to be around, but they also made my life hell at times. I, I kind of want to pick on you there and say pestilent or petulant because either of them could work magnificently <laughs> for a description of a group of boys. <laughs> Can I quote you on that, Ando? <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> And were, during your time there, was there any horror stories that came out of sort of your arrangements as team manager or what's the um, what's one that springs to mind? There might have been a few. Um, yeah, probably my first trip to Africa is just a nightmare. Um, not really through anything I did or didn't do, like no fault necessarily, but I definitely wasn't experienced going to Africa. For starters, it's literally the first time I'd ever been let alone with um, a sporting team. Um, but just from the get-go, flying from Brisbane to Sydney, there was horrific fog in Sydney, which delayed things, which had flow-on effects, which meant instead of hitting connecting flights, we spent an extra night in Joburg and bags needed to go here and there. And everyone, people get like, like this airport hotel that we got there and they're like, don't worry, everything's sorted. You've got a hotel. We've got flights for you the next day, blah, blah, blah. We get to the hotel, they're putting blokes like Will Genya and Radiki Samo into the same room with a single bed. <laughs> and, Big spoon, little spoon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Radiki's the little spoon. And yep. um, they said, you know, your food will be sorted when you get over there. And we got over to the hotel and they're like, no, 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 you've got to go back to the airport to get your food vouchers and stuff. And they told us all the flights would be, everyone would be on the same flight the next day out of Joburg because we were trying to get to Blomfontein. And, um, we get to the airport the next day and they're like, oh, we've split you up over like four flights, which is, so just, that was the beginning of the trip and it just kind of like escalated and everything, like every little thing that could go wrong went wrong over there. So um, it was memorable for good and bad reasons. <laughs> oh, great. Well, mate, thank you for regaling us with a few of those stories and uh, points of interest there. What we might do, we've basically been wanting to chat with you so we can just not talk about the Wallabies result from Saturday night. Um, yep. So let's rip the bandaid off and get to it. So Mitch and I are both out of the game. Australia 17, England 21. It was heartbreaking. Um, I had to force myself to sit down and watch the game again this afternoon. It was painful. And um, look, what we're going to do Mitch, what was your immediate reaction at the end of the match? I mean, I was sitting next to you. You didn't punch anything or me, so that was a good start. How are you feeling? I think, looking back on it, I think us having media accreditation was probably the best thing for our uh, general well-being as we discussed on the way out of the stadium. So. Yep. We had to kind of keep a, a cool head for most of the game. And once or twice, that first try, I think we both stood up and cheered a little bit then realised where we were and had to keep it, keep it uh, professional again. But... Uh, just a bit of a hollow feeling, really. Like, after the game, we it felt in a lot of ways like the Wallabies should have won that game. When we look at the statistics, they had so much possession. They had so much territory. That, but they just didn't seem to make enough of it. And they just... For a deciding test, 
they didn't really look like the team that we saw in the first test in Perth. Um, and yeah, it, it just felt like the Wallabies should have won a game, but they didn't. Akko, immediate reaction? Yeah, pretty much the same thing. I didn't actually watch it live. I had a wedding, so I had um, the unique experience of watching it for the first time, but on demand. So I sort of could like stop and rewind things and be like, hey, what, why was that a penalty and that sort of thing, mm, yep. um, which actually probably took a bit of the emotion out of it. But yeah, just as Mitch has said, it was a bit hollow, and I don't say this to take anything away from England, it was just blown opportunities. Like yep. So many of them, you know, in the first 13 minutes, I was sort of taking notes as well while I was watching it. Um, we bombed, I would say, virtually two guaranteed tries, like that terrible pass from Hodge um, that misses Tom Wright and then the, the poor pass from um, Teniella. You know, it could have been it could have been 14-3 or 14-0 in that first 10, 12 minutes um, quite easily. So, you know, we bombed those opportunities. And then I actually thought we played fairly well for the majority of the game in terms of phase play, got over the gain line um, quite a lot. But as Mitch said, just didn't capitalise on it. And that's unfortunately a common frustration as, um, as a Wallabies fan. And that's the hard part I found is that we had some moments where we looked really impressive. As you said, we were able to get over the gain line, but in, in some ways it seemed like England were just willing to soak up the pressure in the parts mm. of the field that they were happy to kind of uh, just kind of sit back from. And then their, their trial line defense was immense. That yeah. kind of 20th, um, 20 phase period in about the 65th-ish minute of yeah. the game was just immense defence. And as much as our backs looked really dangerous at times throughout the game, we didn't really look like breaking them down as the phases continued. Either we'd have some good maybe second or third third phase play off a set piece. But outside of that, yeah, we, we weren't really making many inroads within them. So looking at the series a little bit more... Actually, no, no let's, let's just stay with this game. On that point, Mitch, do you think England are deserving winners or falling on from what Akko and I just said, did the Wallabies let the one slip? Uh, as a Wallabies fan, you can sit here and say that you feel like the Wallabies deserve to win that and should have won that, but ultimately they didn't and England did enough to get the victory. Um, there were some opportunistic points given away in this game, like that try to Marcus Smith was pretty much handed to them by just poor, yep. simple errors by the Wallabies. But at the same time, like their defense, as you mentioned, in that sort of last 20 minutes, 20 plus phases, making the Wallabies go back with ball in hand, uh, they were taking their their shots at getting over the ball and stealing and getting those pilfers at exactly the right points that just didn't allow the Wallabies to sort of get that killer instinct and make that final blow when they were right there, ready to sort of tie the game up or get it, get ahead on the scoreboard. Courtney Laws or Ellis Genge goes over and, and gets that crucial turnover. So um, you can't really say that they didn't deserve to win it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And look, let's move to some of the significant moments of the match because there are a bunch that we can pick from. I think one of the early ones is Nick Frost not being able to take that charge down um, kind of receipt that he, he charges the ball down and then either half gets tackled before he has the ball, which I'd want to argue, but at the same time, he just wasn't able to collect, <laughs> collect the bounce. Um, and then, I mean, Hodges missed pass, as he said, Akko to right was just basic mistake. How did you think Hodge performed on his return to the Wallabies? Um, I actually didn't think he was too bad as on the whole. Um, 
And I'm someone who has a love-hate relationship with Reese Hodge um, because I think he could be so much more than he has been, but in the same breath, that's not entirely his fault because he's been stuck in that utility role forever. Mm. Um, I kind of wish at some point someone had just said, mate, you're a X and just stick to it. Yep. Um, but that uh, that moment will probably um, tip many people in favour of saying he was he was terrible or you know he was poor or whatever. I, I thought he was better under the high ball than I've seen from Reese Hodge at fullback um, probably before, or at least most of the time. His kicking was um, much needed because we didn't have length on our kicks in game two. Um, so I thought, generally speaking, he was good, but. Also, when you're at that level, you've got to be able to execute those pretty simple plays, and yep. and he, he didn't, and that was early in the game, so you can't put it down to fatigue or anything like that. Yep. I think when you look at the context of his inclusion in the team as well, though, like he's really there to fill a hole that we had. Yeah. Uh, ideally, we would have been having Andrew Kellaway or Jordan Pattaya playing fullback, both guys not yeah. available through injury. So yeah. um, the fact that he's That's... pulled in at the last minute, I think he did what yeah. Dave Rennie probably wanted and needed, but he just yeah. didn't have that impact that we are so craving um, from Australian yeah. rugby fans at the moment of a fullback in the style of sort of Freddie Stewart that was able to have such an impact on the game. Yeah, and that's not his style either. But I think you're right. Like, and that's why I'm not as critical as I've seen some people on mm. um, social media be because you got to put in the context of how he was there this time around. Um, but yeah, I thought he was okay. Look, let's go back to the significant moments. Mitch, um, any key moments that stood out for you within a match? Uh, the pass from Taniela Tupo, like you mentioned before. Uh, yep. He made a few of those, actually, when we look back in it. And overall, I think uh, I'm wondering if he's maybe not 100% fit or quite back to the level that he kind of needs to be for Test Rugby at the moment. He was Some of the decisions he made in this game were a little bit unusual in terms of just throwing the ball willy-nilly out the back or um, not necessarily having as many runs as we probably expect him to do with the, the size and impact we know that he can bring. Yep, Akko, one for you. Uh, yeah, look, it's pretty hard to go past... Um, actually, no, I'm going to be different because I was going to say like those two, the Hodge pass and the Teddy pass, and I don't want to sound like a bleating fan but you know uh it's about it's very late in the game samu kicks into the england 22 that grubber kick and it yep. goes out about five minutes yep. out um great play big fan that line out from england is so criminally crooked it's not funny and it doesn't get pulled up and then like you know they get out they exit and that's not why we lost the game it's not what i'm saying um but when you're right there five meters out um, and we potentially get a scrum because it gets called for not straight. That's a pretty significant moment. There's And, and that's the problem where we can point to legitimate, um, well, what we think are legitimate uh, <laughs> criticisms of the refereeing. But it, it, you're right. It's not the reason we lost. And no, that's not kind at of all. What, I'm, what I'm really enjoying about the Dave Rennie era is that that when there are mistakes which are either obvious or contestable, he never uses them as an excuse for the performance of the team. And so yeah. he simply says, we need to be better. We weren't accurate enough. There are areas of our game we need to improve and focus on. And I think that's really the takeaway of, as while there were some really important um, decisions and moments throughout the game that kind of maybe swung against the Wallabies a little bit, 
we just weren't good enough at some of the basics. And Hannah Erickson yeah. got in touch and says, in a 60 to 60th, 60 to 65th minute, we kicked to the corner for three penalties. Should we have taken a point? Would that have been better game management? Mitch? It's something we spoke about on the drive home from a stadium last night, that it's been a bit of a theme of uh, the Wallabies for the last few years, whether that comes down to Michael Hooper's captaincy or the game plan that the Wallabies want to employ. But they don't seem to take the points on offer all the time. They seem to go to the, the corner and try and get that line-out drive. You can't fault them for that decision if they had a, line, a mall that was a, as effective as, say, probably the Brumbies. Um, and we did see that in the first test, that we scored some good points off the driving mall. But in the last two tests, we haven't had that efficiency there and we haven't been scoring as well. And it almost felt like England had got the um, the rub of the green in that area of the game and they were quite effectively dismantling our mall. So, yeah, I would have loved to have seen Hooper take go to the polls a few times with those penalty kicks and just reapply that scoreboard pressure, particularly yeah. in that 60 to 65th minute mark. We were chasing the game and we weren't out of it completely. If we get two of those kicks, it's six points um, and we end up losing by four. So it changes the way that the rest of the game runs if we can get that little bit closer. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there was a really good... Um piece of statistical work that Rev sent through to us. So in the six games that England have toured here, so 2016, 2022, Australia have kicked 10 from 12 penalty goals and England have kicked 27 of 32. So nearly three times the amount of um, goals have been taken. Given the margins, taking a three was a deciding factor in every game. And a game we won, so in Perth, was the only match where we kicked the same or more penalty goals as them. So say what you will as a Southern Hemisphere Australian running rugby fan. We love tries. Penalties matter. We love tries. <laughs> penalties freaking matter. And it's one of the legitimate criticisms that's been raised at the Wallabies team and particularly Michael Hooper's captaincy. Atko, hot takes? Uh, interesting from Henna. Good point. Um, and I tend to agree that we, um, as, a, as a national team and a rugby nation, are adverse to taking points or kicking at all because, as you say, Endo, we run love running rugby. But Falafanga did score in the mm. 65th minute as well. So, you know, we did come up with points and big points in that period. I thought there was a crucial point in game two, I know we faced some in game three, where we didn't take the points and probably should have. And it was yeah. the, it was like 40 out right in front. Um, but, yeah, this is a – it's a thing I argue with people about on Twitter a lot. Um when it comes to general play kicking, kicking it at, at, at the po um, the posts, it's so underrated in Australia. Um, scoreboard pressure is incredibly invaluable and we need to look at valuing it more. I thought under Rennie they started doing it better initially. Mm. Yep. Um, but, yeah, you'd have to say in this series they, they haven't, um, at least in games two and three. So uh, it's something they'll need to look at for the rugby championship because they're going to need every point. Um, all the points they can get. Another oh, mate, point that sort of frustrated me as well on this sort of point of kicking was that the Wallabies never had that killer instinct in the game or that sort of game awareness that they're 15, 16 phases deep. There's probably 11 or 12 minutes left in the game. They're hot on attack, but they've literally gone backwards with ball in hand. Noel Alessio, mm. they're in the 22. Noel Alessio not once got in the pocket and, and considered mm. going for a field goal. They were down mm. by four points. He slots that field goal. Um, they're down by one. 
they get down the other end within those next 10 minutes and get a penalty and then they're potentially ahead there. So it, yeah. it's just one of those things that uh, the game management wasn't quite probably where it should have been for an international mm. test, um, that there wasn't that, there were, the leaders weren't sort of talking and having that discussion that we're just running up one off, we're getting belted, we're going backwards. What can we do to sort of turn the tide back in our favour? They, uh, I wonder if it's um, Aussie's kind of view, even subconsciously, because it's just um, the way we view rugby. We view taking a drop goal as like a conceit, like you're conceding you can't get through, like it's a, a negative thing, which which we shouldn't. So I wonder if that is affecting our psyche and, and it affects it at the, at the top level. Because as you say, like, Noah didn't want to drop back into the pocket and that's not a sledge on Noah. Like I don't mm. know if we would have a 10 would even think that way because I think as a rugby nation, we are more wired towards like, well, that's not how you dominate a team and that's not how you apply pressure. Um, yeah, and it's definitely yeah, it's, not it's not a slight at, at Noah at all because we saw mm. in that semi-final of Super Rugby Pacific this year that Noah did slot into the, the pocket mm. and did have a go for that field goal. When and then probably he got wasn't criticized. On, and got criticised yeah, for, criticized for it. So I don't know whether the, this is him not wanting to take that risk at the next level or just not having that freedom of choice that he gets at super rugby level. Yeah. Well, why don't we shift yeah. across to some of the players that stood out for either positive or uh, constructive critique reasons. And let's start off with the Wallabies. Lucy Erickson's got in touch. She thinks that Nick Frost had an unreal game. Got some of his stats here. So he had seven runs for 28 metres with five defenders beaten. Pretty good for, was that his run on debut for the Wallabies? Um, so look, that's a pretty good start. And he was one of the key players that really stood up within this game. Akko, who stood out for you? Good or bad? Um, this will come as no surprise, but Samu was enormous, Samu Karevi. Um, and I shudder to think how we're going to go in the rugby championship when he's not available because he's with the rugby sevens in the comp games. Um, that's actually a serious concern for me. I think it's a big concern for the Wallabies. He was really, really good. Um, Big fan of Dave Parecki. Our mm. line-out has been bad for a number of years. And apart from um, that messy line-out that Marcus Smith swooped on and scored, I don't, and I, I wouldn't even put this down to Parecki. Like, I feel like he was faultless yep. for the rest of the game. I can't think of one. Um, yeah, he, he was really good. I could probably name a few. There was a lot of guy, players that really stood up, but um, I'll try not to name too many. I'm a big fan of Parecki. Hook has been a big issue of ours. I thought he was really good the whole series. Mitch? Yeah, uh, I was going to say Precky, thinking that, that Akko was going to go with some of the more obvious selections. Some so, of the Reds players, yep. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll go with some of the more obvious ones. So uh, I thought Tom Wright and Marika Korobetti, those two wingers were outstanding in this game and their yeah. involvements were just phenomenal. Marika Korobetti didn't get the rewards that he probably deserved in terms of getting over the chalk and getting a try, but he was popping up everywhere and he was so agitated and wanting the ball in his hands as much as possible you could see that he was really getting uh, itchy for it. And that's something that we saw in that French series last year as well, that when he wants the ball in hands, he goes looking for it and he ends up popping up in midfield and, and doing those sort of decisive runs all over the place. So um, yep. it was great to see him back at that level again. 
Tom Wright and Marika Corambete, their combined stats are 25 runs, near 200 metres, three clean breaks and 11 defenders beaten between the two of them. I think Tom Wright had his best performance in the green and gold that he's ever had. And um, he's finally starting to fulfil the promise that he's shown at the Brumbies for so long. Um, hopefully he gets more opportunities moving forward because he's he's a type of player that'll back himself and sometimes it'll go wrong. Uh, often when he's the last man recovering kick and he'll try and like dummy one way and then step the other. Works at the Brumbies. Not sure it works at the international level, but I still want him to do it because when it comes off, it's gold. Um, player that I really rated as well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna move over to the England uh, England camp at the moment. Is Freddie Stewart has just been an absolute re revelation over the last kind of 18, 24 months for England. He is still such a young player, but his aerial ability is up there as one of the best that I'm currently seeing going around. Uh, and he's also really strong defensively and a really aggressive ball carrier as well when he gets into those wide channels. So Freddie Stewart is kind of the player that uh, I wish we had in Australian rugby right now, um, just to fill that 15 hole. Ellis Genge, Jack Knoll as well, both, both had immense series. Uh, Jack Knoll, in my mind, his his strength was the kick chase pressure and just the leadership he provided for the younger outside backs around him. So having like Guy Porter and Harry Arundel and other kind of young players who are coming into the team, Noel seemed to be the old steady head um, that was required for that period. Uh, Mitch, any English players you want to quickly do a shout out for before we move on and try not to talk about them? Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed Courtney Law's performances across yeah, the yeah, three, yeah. three yeah. test series. I just think. Uh, he's such a big player, like physically he's so tall, but he utilizes that skill in getting clean uh, turnovers at the breakdown remarkably well. And it's something, it's a player, we don't have a type of player in Australian rugby at the moment of that sort of physique and, and style of play that is as potent at the breakdown. And it's probably something that we're starting to realize we could really use, uh, particularly in this test. The back row was probably not as efficient and, um, effective at the clean out and the breakdown work that we probably would have come to expect or, or needed. Yep. Yeah. Good call. All right. Well, why don't we have a bit of a reflection on tour overall? So let's start off with the team rating. I'm going to ask each of you rate the Wallabies performance across the three games out of 10. So Akko, you're the guest. Go first. This is quite tough because um, they obviously lost the series, but at times, I thought they played some really good rugby. Um, I actually think they played better rugby than England um, on the whole, but they still lost the series. So uh, because they lost, I think I'd bring it down to like a 6.5 yep. um, just because there was just moments that they didn't capitalise on when it counted. Um, and as we spoke about before, you can – work your way upfield, get over the advantage line or get yourself in the 22 and hammer away phase after phase. But if you're eventually not cracking them um, or not executing, then it all counts for Jack Diddley squat. So 6.5. Yep. Cool. Mitch. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking between five and six um, around that mark. I think we, when you take into account the personnel that we had out injured and the lineup that we could have had uh, with the likes of, uh, sort of Darcy Swain there, potentially Jed Holloway, uh, Andrew Kellaway, Quade Cooper. Have some of those players in. I think we're looking at... Ned Hannigan. Don't forget the shed. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure Some Ned injuries was... you're grateful for. Oh, that is hurtful. <laughs> he okay. was named in Australia A, so I don't think he technically counts. Um, as a no, because he player. flew back to the squad. He flew back to the squad and then got injured. So. And did his knee or something, didn't he? You have Injury to count him. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. Really <laughs> count he was realistically him. never going to get on the field. Uh, but some of the some of those players, if we had their influence and we had the impact, uh, I think we're potentially looking at a different outcome in this series. So when we look at the performance of the Wallabies without those key players as a whole, I think it brings that mark up a little bit, which probably yep. gets me to six. But overall, mm. the fact is that um, in the last two tests, once England got ahead on the scoreboard, we were never able to get that lead back. And yeah. Dave Rennie spoke about it at Suncorp in the pre- post-match press conference about being able to stay in the contest and making the right decisions to get ahead. The same thing happened in Sydney and the team, again, weren't making the right decisions and weren't able to get back ahead. So it is something that they're working on um, and that probably leads me down back to that sort of five and a half. Yeah, for me, I'm just sitting on a better five because we can complain about injuries all we want and justifiably so. Um, England also have a pretty significant injury list too or players that for various personal reasons weren't able to tour. So I'm just going to quickly read through this list of names that um, Rev put into our group chat and you'll see the challenge that they had too. Joe Marlin, Nick Dolly, Carl Sinclair, Mara Watoje, obviously after the first game, Charlie Ewells, Joe Launchbury, um, Curry, Underhill, Ben Earl, Alex Dombrant, Sam Simmons, Ben Youngs, George Ford, Johnny May, Manu Tulagi, Henry Slade, Watson, Max Marlins, and Elliot Daly. Like that's a pretty good group of players there, many of them who'd be pushing for starting 15 selection if they were available. So, yeah, we had a lot of injuries too. Ours seemed to happen like during the games rather than before the tour. Um, so that was a strong thing. But for me, I think that when you... We, we can't really blame injuries all that much and I'll be aiming for about a five out of 10 for the tour itself. Um, now, Atco, mm. one of your journo mates, I'm not sure if your mates are Adam Peacock, um, but he put out a video that he saw on WhatsApp regarding some um, abuse that was hurled Eddie's way, Eddie the traitor. What were your thoughts on this one when you saw that video come up? And um, what do you think both in terms of the actions of that supposed Wallabies fan and um, Eddie's reaction to it as well? Um, I think in the light of day, Eddie would probably be a little bit disappointed in himself. Um, But I think he had every right to react the way he did. Um, I really hate the notion some spectators or fans seem to have that they think because they've paid for a ticket, they can go and say and do whatever they want. Mm. Um, it really drives me nuts. And you see it a lot on social media when teams aren't going well, people's fans, supporters, whatever their commentary is. Um, I'm sick of this. I pay good money. This is crap, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, like I get that you pay good money, but it doesn't allow you to abuse or to go over the top with criticism or heckle or anything like that. And there's been a bit of division on um, mm. was that just a little bit of banter or not banter? Was that a bit of heckle or was it abuse? I've been told he he had two chops at Eddie and there is another video that shows Eddie coming hard at someone. Um, and I don't know the SCG well, but it looks like it's just prior to this video we're talking about where Eddie's on the field. Yep. And it looks like when he's at the top part of, of that section of the seating and he's yep. coming around to go down to the meeting we are talking about 
and someone has a go at him. So I don't know if you guys have seen this no, or you no, have a better idea. Someone has a go at him there and he's with the same security guard and he comes back and he's like, what did you say? What did you say? And then it, to me, it looks like it's then he goes down the race onto the field and then we see the video of the guy mm -hmm. in the gold hat. And if you're having two chops at someone, that's not like a bit of fan heckle. That's like you, you're having to crack. You're trying to instigate something. And the fact that old mate backs away so quickly and, you know, drops his bundle, um, the PC version of what I want to say, drops his bundle, <laughs> yep. um, uh, shows to me that, like, you're just a coward. Yeah. Like, you don't, you're not allowed to abuse people ever, but, like, if you're going to throw some heckle or some chat at someone, like, at least be strong enough to stand there and go face to face with the person and be like, this is why I'm calling you a traitor. The other thing is, Eddie Jones isn't a traitor. He's such a passionate Australian. He got sacked by yeah, Australian, exactly. rugby, Australian rugby union. <laughs> he didn't leave and go to a better job in England. Like he got sacked. He went to a real dark place for a long time and he's rebuilt himself and rebuilt his career. Um, yeah, I, I didn't like it. I just think it's rubbish. And um, to my original point, I hate that some people think they can go to any sporting event or any event because they paid money for a ticket. It gives them the right to abuse people. See, I think there just needs to be a bit of an acknowledgement that if you're going to yell stuff at players or coaches, you've got to try and at least be funny. And you might yeah. fail at that attempt. Like you might fail and you might end up just making an idiot of yourself, but at least yeah. you've tried. Um, yeah. So if you're saying something something like, mate, Eddie, come home, swap the tea for the tinnies or, yeah, or yeah. just something like that, um, it's at least making the same point. Yeah, we want you back home, uh, yeah. but also not just kind of abusing the character of the man. Um, yeah. Mitch, quick takes on this before we move on. When you watch this video by itself and sort of out of context without knowing that someone else or was it the same guy that's gone at him in the other video or someone else? Uh, you can't you see? see in that other video, but I have been told that um, I think I read in, one, in the report uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald that, this guy um, had had an undercrack at him. And the security guard says in this yeah. video, I've already spoken to you, mate. I've spoken to you before. Yeah, I did read somewhere that he had said something to him pre-game and at halftime. Um, yeah. But it was, I was surprised just watching Eddie get so fired up so quickly, considering mm. he just won the series. Like, yeah. he, he'd normally be in his... He'd pro, he says he loves the fans bantering and all that sort of stuff. So I was surprised to see him so visibly shaken by that and and sort of going at the fan um, as well. So I think there might be a little mm. bit more to the story, something that we're not seeing. Someone else has gone at him potentially, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I hate that fans can think they can do that. For the most part, this guy probably doesn't even know the backstory, probably doesn't even know who Eddie is other than he's an Australian who's coaching England. So he's probably yeah. got this half the story, doesn't understand mm. Eddie's journey, what's happened, and he's just had a crack, think it's funny and didn't realize that Eddie was so close that he could hear it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, why don't we move on from that controversy? We haven't even mentioned the uh, substandard toilet facilities at the SCG, which have required a fan to get onto the, what, stadium roof or something like that and take a leak off oh, the yeah. edge. Uh, but anyway, let's, let's I don't think, dive into I don't those. think that's a, um, that's a... He was just trying to rain on England's parade, that's all. Well said, well said. You can come back. Yeah. Um, just landed so, on the Australian fans. Where yeah. to from here for the Wallabies? So what I want to have a conversation about first is 
there's been a couple of points which I'm a bit annoyed about. We need to obviously do our pods straight after the show, but uh, straight after the game. But there's been some questions raised about the captaincy of Michael Hooper moving forward. So we were talking before about um, the decisions that Australia makes on a semi-regular basis to not look to come away with the threes, either through penalties or drop goals, and to push for five or seven points. And how, using those stats that Rev provided before about Australia versus England, that is not looking like the way that we should be aiming to win test matches. So do we think that Michael Hooper should remain as the Wallabies captain moving forward? Note that I'm saying he whether he should remain as captain, he obviously remains as a number seven moving forward. So this isn't a question of his position and team, it's a question of his captaincy. Mitch, your quick take on that before I throw to Akko. I'm really torn. I'm really torn on this one. Uh, on the one hand, I do think that there are elements of Hooper's game as captain that are probably not meeting the required level of an international um, test captain. So if we look at a player like Kieran Reid, Richie McCaw, Sia Khaleesi as well, they have really great relationships with the referees and they've they got constant back and forth um, throughout the game. And we very rarely see Michael Hooper having constructive conversations with um, the referees on the game day. So... Um, part of me thinks, and the decisions as well that are being made and whether that's uh, tactically a game plan by the Wallabies or if that's a decision by Michael Hooper uh, to go to the corner, not to go to the posts. Uh, that I, I would in some ways like to see someone else get a crack uh, to see if the sort of game plan changes and if those decisions are made differently. But at the same time, who else do we put in? That's the question. And at the moment, the only person that's really forming in my mind as the next choice for captain is potentially Nick White. And I just feel like he's such a, um emotional player as it is that if he's if he's getting niggled by the opposition and he's having a bit of a, a hot head night, um, when he's the team captain as well, everything could just go to poop. Yeah, interesting point there. Uh, one thing I will quickly say is that I was really impressed by uh, Michael Hooper's captaincy when the scrum went down for the Wallabies front row, like not supporting their weight pre-contact. And we got the penalty against us, which I thought was just... Was that the short arm that went to long arm? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Full yeah. Arm? Yeah. That was ridiculous. The yeah. tight head from England stands Backed up. Backed out. Away. Stands up. Yep. Yeah. I watched it again this Arvo and I was like, how the hell is that call going yeah. against us? But anyway, um, straight after that, Hoops goes up to clarify what was wrong um, and is told by the ref what the issue was and he asked can our hooker please come over and speak to you to get a clear understanding of what picture you're looking for um and so then ref says yes and Pariki goes over and has a conversation with him i haven't seen that happen before mm -hmm. and it's a good way of just kind of managing that relationship a yep. little bit to try and work with the referee and so, getting the relevant players involved as well yeah correct correct yeah. um whereas uh what was it ellis genge earlier in the game was trying <laughs> to talk to the ref and the ref's like Get the captain. captain. Go away. Go away. Yeah. Um, okay. Akko, Hooper stay as captain or somebody else step in? Oh, if you had asked me two years ago, he would have been out of the team altogether. <laughs> um, but I would keep him as captain. Um, I think he's the best person for the job. I think the not taking points example is probably a team thing as much yeah. as it's a Michael Hooper thing. Because yeah. I think if Dave Rennie's going, mate, why didn't you take the points again? Why didn't you take the points again? Yeah. I think eventually you'd see hoops rung out. Like I don't think Rennie would throw him under the bus publicly, but I think you'd see a change. Yeah. Um, 
so I think that's potentially a team approach. They want to back themselves there. Um, so I, it just take it needs a tweak, um, not just hoops. It needs you know leadership's not just the captain. The leadership is coaching and stuff as well. It's senior players. Um, I, I would keep hoops as captain. I think he's very very good. Um, I think he's a relationship with referees has improved in the last couple of years. Mm, definitely. Uh, yep. He's not sort of, he's also, in my opinion, not someone to be, not someone who loves having a chat with them, which maybe he needs to approach a little bit. Um, sorry, change a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm, I like hoops. I'm really happy with him as captain. I think he's been phenomenal. I think he um, speaks really well. I think he leads really well from the front. Um, he probably needs some better support around him. Um, and maybe it's a different conversation if you got a more senior 10. You know, last year when they had Quaid playing there, they did seem to take points more yeah. often, yep. um, that sort of thing. Maybe it's because yep. Quaid's got a bigger voice. And, and I'm not saying I know that Noah doesn't. Um, but I'd be curious to know how some of those decisions were approached if you had a James O'Connor or a Quaid Cooper at a 10 yeah. um, yep. and some of those other senior players in, uh, in the side. I'm surprised yeah. you didn't go for Harry Wilson for captain. Uh, uh, Guarantee selection. I, I, I wasn't all that happy with Harry um, in his game. Um, yeah. But I think uh, we're not really talking about Harry, but I, I didn't really see how they were using him. I was a bit disappointed. Not in him. I was just disappointed. Yeah. Like, I was, what's his role? He didn't, he Correct. barely yep. ever carried the ball. And then, he, um, yeah. So, yeah, for my no, mind, he's, not a, Harry he's was, not a six. For me, yeah, I guess it depends on the makeup of your back row, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I was, I was uh, really confused with what he was supposed to be doing out there. Mm. And that's a really good point. He had what two carries, um, yeah, within his time in the field, and he is, he was the player in Super Rugby Pacific that had the most gain line meters after contact. So yeah, exactly. Why aren't you using him in that role? So obviously, smarter minds than me had a role for him within the game. Mm. It just Mm. didn't seem to a be apparent or b be effectively executed either by the team or by Harry. So um, I don't think he should be judged and his role in the team purely off this one game. I I hope and I think he will get more opportunities moving forward, Um, and he will definitely be a part of the broader squad. But yeah, it's um, it, it's a good question and a good point in discussion with Rennie as to what what was his role and and what mm. did you see him contributing to the team. Um, but why don't we keep on going? And so why don't we finish with that captaincy discussion? I'd probably agree that I think Hooper should stay, but I'd love to see the input of other players be increasing. I think part of the challenge is when you actually look at the broader squad, the there isn't a huge amount of um incredibly experienced players like Michael Hooper within a team that have really loud voices. Somebody like Alan Alatoa could be a really good option, but he's competing for a starting spot with Tanya Latupo. Um, yeah. So, he's going to get subbed at 50 minutes in most yeah, weeks, isn't he? So, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, like one option, if, if the point was Hoops is getting the captaincy taken off him, what do you do? Then I'd be going White and Alatoa share it. So mm. when Alatoa comes on, um, he takes over the captaincy um, because White will be going off a little bit or soon after, something like yeah. that. But anyway, let's move on. So the next couple of matches we have are pretty tough um, 
pretty tough games against Argentina away. And so Argentina have just wrapped up their series against Scotland with a final minute win. Actually, I think it was overtime in the 80 or 81st minute win against Scotland to clinch the series 2-1. So what's going to be our 10-12 combo for Argentina? And Akko, we'll start with you on this one. Um, obviously, Noah has started the three games because of injuries both to Quade Cooper and then James O'Connor has been coming back. Samu will be in Birmingham with the Aussie Sevens for the Commonwealth Games. Who do you put in at 10 and 12? Um, Quade into 10 without um, any hesitation. Uh, and a bit like Hooper before, if you had to ask me that two years ago. If you had asked me that 12 months ago, no, no chance at all. Um, I've come around on Quade despite being a Queenslander. I thought Quade was... Um, I thought Quaid was well and truly um, beyond. Oh, sorry, Test Rugby was beyond him, um, but he really impressed me last year. The thing that worries me about putting Quaid in, or anyone for that matter, without Samu is it's going to be a huge task. It doesn't matter who's yeah. wearing the 10, yeah. um, but I think Quaid is our best option for the moment. Uh, and I I honestly don't know who to put in at 12. Um, I'm going to throw this like complete curveball in right now just – for um, proverbials and gigs, um, uh, Marika Corbetti. What? Mm. I, think I, I love, love I it. See it. I just because, be, because what Samu does so well yeah. is just get over the game line. And he does a lot more than that, and people don't give him credit for it. But he gets us over the game line almost every time he touches the ball. And Marika's greatest ability is he's just a great ball carry. Like he's strong. He's hard to tackle. And if you just give him the ball, he's going to get us over the game line and he's going to get the 10 out of trouble if we're on the back foot uh, and that sort of thing. That's uh, that's the reason why I don't expect them to do it. <laughs> I'd actually still be scared if they did it. Um, but I just, I have no idea because like Lenny Cattell not a 12. Um, Hunter can play 12 and 13, but he's not the same. He doesn't give me a whole leap of confidence at 12 um, at test level. And I don't, I can't think of anyone else who would. So, yeah. curveball, Marika. Yep, okay. I absolutely love that. Like, it's not going to happen, but I love it. <laughs> no. Um, yep. Okay, Mitch. I'm going to go left field with this selection. Uh, if Quade Cooper's fit, I think we pick him. Uh, like Akko said, it still asks questions of that 12 jersey. But if he's not fit and if he's not 100%, I'm going to go left field and pull players from Australia A, and I'm going to go with Tane Edmund at 10 and Lalakai Fakedi at 12. Ah. Go for the Waratahs centre pairing. Just to see, I mean, it's Argentina. I, I know we can't take them easily, but at, outside of potentially the only other option if we're going for that sort of cohesive factor is James O'Connor at 10 with Hunter Paisami or yeah. Hamish yep. Stewart at 12. Uh, yep. I just think that we're probably going to get a little bit more out of Tane Edmed and uh, Fakedi at 12, 10. But again, you're bringing in two players who've not been in the setup for a while. Uh, to They've got time. They'd have to be with the squad now to, to get it to work. Yep. I think Marika's a better chance of playing 12 than those yeah. two playing 10, 12. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, interestingly, though, Lalakai has been a step above everybody else within the Australia A setup. So you watch his performances yeah. across the three games and he is hands down the best backline player um, on the field for Australia. So it wouldn't surprise me if he is a part of maybe the touring squad um, just as that 12 backup, considering that Samu's not there. 
But for me, I think you'll go Hunter Ikatau 12 13, uh, probably with Quaid, probably yeah. with Quaid in there at 10. Yeah. Um, was that I've, the. Sorry, was that the. Do you know, is that the backline combo we had when we played Japan? It sounds. Or Hunter, Hunter didn't play Japan, maybe. Japan. But we didn't have Samu, he was injured. I think, was that where. We had Quaid. That was Quaid's yeah, last Quaid. test. Or Fakedi got in at 12 there. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember that game because like I've been so impressed. Sorry, I know to cut you off. No, I've been so impressed good. with Quaid and was like happily eating humble pie um during the rugby championship, um and then played Japan and a lot of the old things um, that I used to hate about Quaid came back like yeah. the just just shoveling the pass and not wanting to take contact and sort of freaking out when it looked like he was going to get caught with the ball and it, it felt like yeah. it's because he didn't have Samu to dish to to just get us over the game line. Yep. That was my that was yep. just my external um, yeah. take on that game. So like yeah, just that's what worries me about yeah. any games in the future we don't have Samu. Good memory. It was um, it's basically the same lineup that we could see moving forward. So it was Nick Watt at nine, Quaid at ten, Kellaway at eleven. So obviously he's out with injury. Um, Hunter, Len, Tom Wright at fourteen, Reese Hodge at fifteen. So just take away Kellaway and put in Marika, and it's basically yeah. the lineup that is. I think Kellaway is actually on soon. track to be back for the Argentina tests. Oh really? Or okay. maybe South Africa. Uh, Might be I, South wasn't Africa. it eight weeks? It was six yeah, or eight I weeks. Yeah, I thought it was eight weeks. So that yeah, he won't I'm... be ready for Argentina if it's eight weeks. Um, but anyway, okay, cool. So why don't we then have a conversation about the locks in the back row? Because that's the biggest issue that we've had. Is Rory Arnold already on a plane back to Australia to meet up with the squad? Surely he's the one coming in to replace Simon Karevi um, as that third overseas option. Echo? I think he's already. I think he's already back. I think he's already here. Oh, good. Um, Dave said during the week he's back for Richie's wedding, his twin brother's wedding. Yeah, cool. Um, so he, Dave said on Thursday, like, I feel like he almost said, like, yeah, Rory will coming, he's coming in without actually yeah. saying that. Um, so I think you could lock, pardon the pun, him in to be that third okay. um, overseas player. Um, and I think we, yeah, we probably need him. I've been pretty impressed with the locks, actually, to be honest, mm. Um, mm. so far. Um, but it wouldn't hurt to get Rory Arnold in there as well. Yeah, exactly. I think it just provides that extra level of experience and starch um, within a team. Because as good as, say, Matt Phillip has been, Darcy Swain was for his short appearance in the first match, um, and what he can offer, look, there's no comparison between the overseas experience that Rory Arnold can bring and his proven experience in the green and gold. Uh, Mitch, who are you thinking will come in or what changes would you make for the back row or locking combinations? Um, in terms of a player coming in that's not in the squad already? Like no, not necessarily, of... but like starting 15 um, or starting 6, 7, 8, would you be making any changes um, for the Argentina match? I think we probably see a similar lineup to what we've seen already in this, this series. So Hooper at 7, uh, Valentini at 8 with, I think Rob Liotta hasn't quite, um, shown what he's capable of in this series. So I don't know whether he gets the the selection to be able to prove the um, faith that the Wallabies uh, coaches have shown in him so far. Uh, so I wonder if they put him on at, at six yep. or yep. Um, who did we have this? We had Wilson at six. I don't think Wilson's effectively used it as, as a six. So I'd prefer to see him at eight. I wouldn't hate to see... Um, a back row combination of uh, six, Valentini, seven, Hooper, and Harry Wilson at eight. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. All right, let's go a couple of quick questions before we finish up with our review of the Wallabies versus England series. So um, Andy Conahan got in touch and he was asking whether the back row needed a rethink, felt like we had no presence over the ball last night. Um, oh, yeah, we've just spoken to that point and agree. I think Hoops has been instrumental at a couple of key points with turnovers. He's picking his moments really well. But outside of that, I think we have lacked some of that on-ball presence. Um Mitch Rev Evans from the Wallaby squad, who impressed and who didn't? And out of all injured players, who did the Wallabies miss most? Atco, who do you think we missed most in terms of injured players? Uh, can I just really quickly touch on Andy Conahan in the back row? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would like to move Valentini to six and start Samu at eight. You get more presence over the ball. Samu has been really good off the bench, and I think he's earned it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you still get the Valentini at six, you get it at eight. Yeah. Um, and you just get more presence at the breakdown with Hooper and Samu there. I would really like to see that. Yeah, good um, uh, I think we really miss Quaid. Um, I think it really showed uh, in crucial moments. I didn't think Noel was uh, that bad, but I think at times when we needed um, someone to step up and take the game by the scruff of the neck, he didn't quite do that. Mm. Um, he was really good in game one, but I think it was. I think his performance was probably... Um, um, overstated a bit because we ended up winning um, and he kicked really well, which was important, but I don't think he was quite as controlling as it, it maybe looked because the result went our way. Um, <clears throat> and I don't think he was necessarily much worse in games two and three, but because we lost, it looked like he was worse. Yeah. Uh, I just think, I genuinely think of all the players, all the injuries, if we just had swatted, slotted Quaid in and everything else stayed the same with all the other injuries we had, I reckon we win that series. Yeah. Christian Willie Kay has got in touch, basically echoing what you were saying. I'm finding Lolisu very disappointing. Two games in a row, he had an opportunity to take control of the game and didn't. Doesn't seem like it comes naturally to him. I think what we're referring to here or talking about is also just the the lack, the comparative lack of experience he has as opposed to Marcus Smith. Now, for a long time, listeners of the pod, we went through this in a fair bit of detail, maybe six, nine months ago, where we looked at the uh, premiership caps that, Marcus Smith had for Harlequins versus the Super Rugby caps that Lola Sioux had for the Brumbies prior to the international debut. And it was in the region of 100 plus for Harlequins and 20 plus for Lola Sioux. And even then, Marcus Smith is taking a long time to settle into international um, rugby. He spoke about it at the post-match presser last night that he's finding it really hard and he's having to adjust his game to match the requirements of test rugby and so i think that yeah we can we can uh constructively critique noah's performance and said that he needs to be more assertive at key moments within the match but he's also young and inexperienced in all forms of professional rugby at this point we can't forget that and they're essentially the same age. They're born in the same year yep. at, yep. at either ends of the year. Noah's, Noah is actually 10 months younger than him, I think. Um, but they're both born in the same year. And yeah, it's a really good point. And it, it speaks to a bigger problem within Australia. We don't play enough rugby. Even our, our professional season is, what, 16 weeks or something like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. the, um, the premiership, English Premiership finish starts months before the Super Rugby season does and finishes after the Super Rugby season does. They just play yep. a lot more rugby. Yep. 
Cool. Um, Mitch, jumping across to you, uh, Jock Cardmore said, what's more important as a 13? Strike power, such as Hunter Paisami or defensive reliability, Ikitao. I know both players can do both, but one is clearly more strike at the cost of defence and vice versa. So what do you think is more important, Paisami's strike power or Ikitao's defensive reliability? I think it really goes... The, the question needs to take into account who's playing 12. Um, so if we've got Samu Karevi there playing 12, then I think we need a defensive player um, that's not necessarily going to do the same thing that Karevi's going to do. We've got two out-and-out ball runners who are going to run the ball hard and, and bust tackles. That's great. But if both of those players aren't going to be there to defensively um, show up and put the play to ground, then we're going to leak a lot of points. So I think... Karevi is our best 12 in Australian rugby at the moment, and we keep him there when he's available without external selection factors and injuries and those sort of things. So I'd go with Karevi at 12, and then um, I'd go with Ikitao at 13 because he's that reliable defensive player. Yep. All right. All good points, my friend. Well, that's brought us to the end of the discussion about the Wallabies England series. I basically just want to block this from my memory now and never talk about it again. Um, it's been two series in a row that we've been beaten by England and my family that are living over there. I just, I just can't handle talking to them. So I think I'm going to cut off contact. Um, but we couldn't have done this without you, Atko. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your hot takes. Uh, Marika at 12 is going to be the tagline <laughs> for this episode going Hashtag out. Hashtag Atko. So yeah, that's going up straight after this. Straight after this. <laughs> I'm going to get absolutely slammed for that. But you know what? You know Bring what? I, as I said, I don't expect it to happen. I just, I'm just trying to think of how we can replicate what Sami delivers. And he's the right. only person that comes to mind. It'll be so much fun. We've missed a lot of um, the spicy headlines now that we don't have Checker as coach. Uh, mm. Dave Rennie is a bit boring in that regard, so maybe <laughs> some of his selections can bring the controversy instead. So Marika for 12, what a great way to finish off this section of the pod. Again, thanks for your time, Atko. I really appreciate it. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me. Right, moving now to the other talking points from the weekend. There are obviously the internationals across New Zealand, Ireland, South Africa, Wales, Argentina, Scotland, France, and Japan. I think had a game as well, although I don't have that no, detail I don't in think front they of me. Did, actually, oh my bad. I think it was um, a two-test series. Australia A defeating Tonga as well. Like this, there was a lot of rugby going on. Lots to talk about. Let's start off with the Irish series of victory coming away 32-22 victors on the weekend, clinching the series 2-1, a historic victory. Their first win, well, last week was their first win against New Zealand ever in New Zealand. And now they have the series victory, first time in their rugby history as well. How good was this win and how soon will Ian Foster be out of a job, Mitch? <laughs> Look, uh, I'm going to put it out there. I haven't had a chance to watch this game. We were on our way to the SCG when the game was being played. Didn't get home until after 1 a.m. and then work today. So no chance to even watch the mini excuses. or the highlights for this game. Lots of excuses. <laughs> I know, it's not good enough. I admit that. But... Um, I so I'm not going to talk about rugby, any elements of the Foster, game. I'm just going to talk about Ian the Foster. context. That fantastic to see Ireland has got this series win, uh, such a historic moment for them as a nation to get their first win last week on New Zealand soil to then get their first series win against New Zealand as well is just absolutely awesome. I do wonder 
and it has been said a little bit online that are, are they peaking too early like they always <laughs> do with the World Cup still yep. 14 months away but uh, I, I, I personally think that this is a good um, growth period for them and they're now ranked number one in the world so that's yep. a fantastic um, bit of reward for them they're also the Rayburn shield holders as well if we um, uh, good on them uh, yep yep our interview earlier in the year um, about the Ray- or last year I think it was even when we were holders yeah, of correct. it but yeah the Rayburn yep. shield is now in Ireland in- interesting development that's come out of New Zealand rugby after this match the post-match press conference that was meant to be held at the uh, uh, and I'm not sure today. exactly if it today. was I think it was today there was a yeah, media correct. opportunity yep. today and wasn't they don't do immediate after game like we do in Australia um, was cancelled by New Zealand and so there was no the coaches, the captains, there was no frontage to media about what had about the loss, what had happened. So, a bit of warning signs going off in New Zealand. What does Mate, that mean? there's even there's even more detail because I mean, like, look, they they had their post match press conference insofar as um Robinson, uh, not Robinson, <laughs> my bad, uh, Foster and Kane definitely fronted the media after the game, but they did have a press conference organised for today, and the journo's were there in the media room, like waiting for them to turn up and then we're told that Foster wasn't coming. And so that's just a bad look. Now, the CEO of New Zealand Rugby has come out and said that um, he, he hasn't used the phrase has the full support of the board because uh, <laughs> everybody knows that's just the, um, to the boys. hangman's noose. Um, you, you just know straight away that the, the coach is gone. Um, but it said that we're confident in Ian, we're working with him to address the issues within team's performance, blah, 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 blah. Um, the, the frustrating thing from this is that, and it was brought up by somebody on Twitter, how so often it's um, New Zealand losing a series rather than Ireland winning a series. And I think that does a huge discredit to Ireland mm. with the performance that they've been able to put across the three games within the series. So incredibly well done. I love the banter going around about Ireland peaking too early again. Um, it was started by Josh Gardner from the Blood and Mud Rugby podcast, or at least his post is the most... Um, got the highest traction so much fun so much of the bands is coming through there so we'll see if they can make it out of the quarterfinals next year let's let's see how that goes it would be interesting to see, it, it is really interesting to see what will happen for new zealand rugby right now um under yeah, this phase yeah. i don't think new zealand will uh pull the pin and, and get rid of foster and look at another option but there are some rumors that i have heard today that scott robinson isn't in, in new zealand he's actually in australia and he was spotted after the wallabies test last night in at in various parts of the city of Sydney. So some interesting developments there as to Mm. last week, he was in Fiji watching Australia A play against Fiji. And this week he's in Sydney watching the Wallabies play against England. So not sure what's going on there, but I guess we'll just wait and see. We'll wait and see. South Africa won a series 2-1 against Wales. Wales had an incredible second match in the series to level it up going into this weekend's decider. And South Africa have come away 30-14 convincing winners with tries to Andre Pollard. Uh, I need to practice how to pronounce his name, so I will apologise in advance. Mbonambi. I need to practice that one. Oh, see Khaleesi. Yeah, and- Bonambi. 
Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Andre Pollard, penalty, three penalties to his name as well as three conversions. So great kicking effort from him. Uh, whereas Wales were only able to get over the line with Tommy Ruffell and then Dan Bigger converting three penalty opportunities. So brave effort by the Welsh, um, but South Africa coming away victors there. Argentina defeating Scotland in literally the final play of the game, literally, and getting a try to take it to 34-31 to defeat the Scottish. So well done to Argentina. They've got the home series win and got a bit of a head of steam, hopefully not, but they seem to, heading into the next two matches against Australia, obviously over in Argentina. Um, Australia A defeating Tonga with Samoa then winning the Pacific Nations Championship. So Samoa defeated Fiji. If Fiji had won, we would have come away as the winners of the championship, but all impressive credit to Samoa. They were, um, what, played three games. We beat them, so they won two and had no, better. No, we did not beat them. No, we didn't beat them. They but... were, I, I'm really, really thrilled. No, I meant Samoa. to say lost to them, I think. I, yes, I meant yes. to say they, lost to they them. They went Sorry. through undefeated in this in this yep. uh, tournament. So it's a really, really good thing to see that, Samoa were able to get that late try against Fiji mm. and, and clinch the series, take out yep. the the title. Um, fantastic thing to see the development of this Samoan side. Interesting to see yeah. how they go in the World Cup next year. Uh, yeah. There's still a lot of water to go under that bridge before we get there and player selections and all those sorts of things. Another year of Moana Pacifica will only help them get better. Yep. Um, but and I imagine they're playing the Pacific Nation Cup again next year. I don't know in terms of World Cup prep and that sort of thing with restricted test matches and that sort of stuff, whether it will go ahead. But um, great to see that they they deserve to win this this tournament. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, as, as an Australian fan, it would have been great to get the, the victory there in Australia A. They didn't play great across all of their games. They played well enough to win some of their games, didn't play well against... Um, they had a great game against Fiji in all credit to them but that Samoan game they did not play well so I think Samoa are deserving victors Agreed. Agreed. Uh, some really big news coming out from the Americas. Chile have qualified for the Rugby World Cup. How good is that? So they were able to defeat... Oh, let me get this all this information up because I was having a great read of it before. I want to go back and watch this game now. Um, so Chile have advanced Rugby World Cup for a, a 31-29 victory over the United States winning the two-leg aggregate. They lost by one point the previous weekend. So by winning by two points, that gets them over America into the pool where they're going to be playing England, Argentina, Japan, and Samoa. So good luck, Chile. Is this their um, first ever World Cup? Chile? I believe it is. I believe That's it awesome. is. I don't recall them going into another World Cup. Um, I might be wrong, but it would have I hope to be I'm one not. of the early ones because, yeah, I can't remember them being yeah. included in the last few. So obviously America having lost that, that does not mean they're out of the picture yet. They can still make it through to France by a qualification tournament, which is happening in November, including Portugal, Kenya, and the Asia Pacific playoff loser. So I would be very surprised if America does not get through, but it's, it's actually quite worrying for American rugby that they were, that there's been conversations about how they're a future rugby powerhouse. And yet with the, 
greatest of respect, I would have expected them to be able to account for Chile. Um, so, I mean, if you look at, there was a great tweet by Tier 2 Rugby that says, in a previous four meetings before this year between USA and Chile, the aggregate score was 237 to 30. The last match in Santiago in 2019 was 71 to 8. So Pablo Lemoyne and his staff have pulled off one of the most remarkable turnarounds and greatest miracles in rugby history. Amazing, amazing story there. And see, track Paul Tate and Tier 2 Rugby um, listeners if you want to find a little bit more out about this game and some of the information behind it. Uh, anything else you want to touch on there, mate? Or should we yeah, move I just think it's, As you hinted at, it's, it's worrying that the, the USA are now going to uh, are in this like last ditch effort to get into the the World Cup when they've been announced as hosting the World Cup in two um, two tournaments time. That's really concerning. Uh, you would imagine that the USA rugby, with the resources they're putting into it, would have performed a lot better than they did, and there's still a chance that they may not qualify. So, if that does happen, there will be alarm bells ringing at World Rugby. I can imagine. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what the fallout from that is. But yeah, we'll guess we'll see what happens over the, the coming weeks and months as we get towards that November tournament. Awesome. Well, why don't we move on, on to the locker room? Let's go. So the first question from the locker room comes in via Facebook by Elijah Glass. And he asks, he's interested to hear our thoughts on the lack of TMO intervention this week. Uh, do we think we it was the game? Sorry. Do we think it made it easier to watch the game that is? Or do we think things were missed because they kept their mouth shut? Yeah, I think it was definitely easy to watch. Um, the main objection that I have in terms of why didn't TMO say something is about my team. So I don't want the TMO to say anything about the opposition or about us doing something to the opposition. But if you go back and look at um, Freddie Stewart's try when he um, kind of cuts inside from Tom Wright and is yeah. able to just get over the line, it's, it's a good, well-finished try. Um Marika, sorry, not Marika, Summer Karevi is the supporting player on the inside of Tom Wright. And there's actually really, really clear footage of Johnny Hill holding Karevi back and grabbing his jersey and pulling him and holding him into the rock whilst Hill is on the ground out of the play. And so that, in my mind, I'd love to see that back again and be able to analyze it a bit more with a few good angles to see whether it functionally impacted Samu's ability to get across and make the tackle on Freddie Stewart. Yeah. It looks like it did. So that's an one specific instance. But as a general point, I was actually quite happy with less TMO involvement. Mm. Whether that was a clear decision that they'd made or whether there were just less incidents requiring TMO involvement, I'm not sure. But either way, less TMO in my mind is a good thing. Less and with the play. new TMO protocols in place too, that the TMO can review any piece of play and then only bring it to the attention of the referee when he thinks it's warranted of a penalty or a change in decision. We don't know if the referee has uh, adjudicated those or has um, looked at those th- those yep. areas. There were a few questionable things in the game that some people on Twitter have pointed out. I, I was quite impressed with the overall refereeing performance by the whole team yeah. this weekend. And yeah, I, I think the game flowed well from it. And I am choosing to believe that the, the TMO did review those incidents and deemed that there wasn't enough um, evidence to overturn the decision. And so that's why we play on and we keep going. Um, yeah, good call. Which is what those rules were introduced to do and to speed up the game. And if that's what's happened and we're as fans not having to sit through 20 minutes overall of a game of the... Timo going through these slowly and the referee just making that decision. 
then this is potentially what we're going to have to get used to. And that's just the, I guess, the other side of that coin. Um, yep. Let's go to the next question that have come in via Twitter. Um, and the first one comes into us by Michael Tomlinson. And he asks, how do we get a hard edge back into our forwards? They got smashed this series. Also, given how many turnovers England got throughout the series, do we need an out-and-out jackal? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, this would be something I'd love to ask Lord Worry down at the Brumbies, Worry Fisher, and see what he thinks they need to be doing. Because I thought our forwards were going to be our strength coming into this series. And I'm not going to say they performed really poorly because they didn't, but at key moments throughout the series, it got outmuscled. Obviously, the first 30 minutes within the second match. Um, at points throughout this weekend, they weren't able to make the decisive inroads in the English defence that we would hope to see. Uh, I'm. How do we get a hard edge back into them? I think you probably bring in a bit more experience, maybe within the locks or... Maybe as Atko was saying, is you get someone like Harry Wilson who is more of that ball runner to complement Bobby Valentini instead of Leo, so who I think, like you mentioned, had a bit of a quieter series. Yeah. And the last point of that the last point about um getting a jackal, what are your thoughts yeah. around that? Well, look, I don't like think if we were to jackal. bring a, another jackal option into the game, who would it yeah. be? Because currently if we look at the the lineup we've got. Michael yep. Hooper, Valentini, and this week, Wilson, last week, Leota. Yep, yep. Leota and, and Valentini aren't known for their on-ball jackling presence. Yeah, so, I mean, Akko spoke about it before that Samu, from a back row perspective, is probably the best one to be bringing yep. in if you're wanting that And I impact. thought that was a great shout. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Turns out he might know what he's talking about here and there, which is great. Okay, sometimes. Um, <laughs> Echo sometimes knows new hashtag. Um, but for me, we got to recognise that uh, jackling or pilfering is a whole team effort. Uh, part of what South Africa and New Zealand have been able to do so well against the Wallabies in the past, and even in France, um, in the French series last year, who was who was their big thirteen? Who was such a good on ball presence out wide? Um, yeah, his I name can't remember his name, D. but yeah, I know. Name started with D. Anyway, you know the guy I'm talking about. Started at 13 for a bunch last season. Um, they are ones getting turnovers out wide. And so we can't be relying on like maybe two of our back rowers to be doing everything. It needs to be a team effort. So I'd love to see Samu with his size getting a bit more involved within those opportunities. Um, or He's got the skill someone... set from his sevens background too. You would hope oh, so. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm, think I'm thinking of Karevi. Keep going. Yeah, that's what I, I was saying. No, I was saying Karevi as well. Samu Karevi. Oh, not um, Samu. Gotcha. No, too many Samus. Um, and then Dave Parecki had a couple of opportunities on the ball, but I'd like to see him try and expand that element of his game as well to be more of an on-ball presence where possible. Um, so, yep, that's my response. Well, I think music to all Australian rugby fans is, is that um, the prodigal son has returned. Tolu Latu is in talks to sign with New South Wales Waratahs. So... Next year at the World Cup, we will have Tolu Latu out there getting every jackal known to man. So, so you're, you're telling me that you want to take Pareki off for Latu, Pareki the Messiah, and now you're saying that Latu is going to take over? No, Latu can come off the bench. Okay. So Pareki starts, and Fangaa can be our backup, our third choice. Okay. That's what okay. I'm, no, okay. I, I'm, right. I'm not saying I want it. I'm saying it's what's going to happen. <laughs> okay why don't we keep on going let's quickly move off that point um sheepy sends in what was worst our inability to attack constantly crabbing and constantly late to rucks or that cowardly aussie sledger 
Uh, you know what? As much as I despise the Aussie sledger, that's just an idiot. So I think the inability to break the British, the British, the English defensive line at key points within the series was worse because that's broken my heart. I think that sledger is just an absolute tosspot. Um, oh, there is a there is a little tongue out emoji. So that last bit was very much <laughs> oh, tongue in cheek. Don't worry. It wasn't really part of the Are question. You, how how rude that sheep is having some jokes here. Um, but yeah, I would be going inability to attack. That was that was a frustration for me at key moments throughout the game. Yeah, we spoke about it whilst the game was was on while we were in the media box around how they were so quickly shifting the ball out wide. And there was a oh, number of times yeah. when we go back and and you liked the idea of them getting it out wide, and you thought that they were getting a lot of. Uh, meters from that I wasn't so sure about how quickly they went wide because yep. it ended up slowing down the attack in a lot of ways they had to throw a three two or three man over a cutout pass which then meant that the winger had to stop and wait for the ball to get to them they weren't sort of mm -hmm. running onto it at speed and then they'd probably make some some meters in the contact but if they went through the hands they're probably going to make those meters anyway um, yep. Dave Rennie spoke in the press conference after the game about identifying areas close to the ruck where there was some space that they didn't utilize. So I don't know whether that message just wasn't passed down from the coaching box or what or just wasn't sort of picked up and utilized on the field. But there was a number of times, particularly late in that second half, where they were shifting that ball very quickly out wide. Uh, my other thought around that constantly late to rucks, I think, and I don't want to use this as an excuse, but I do think it's a relevant point, is that we... Uh, we don't have our first choice locks uh, available at the moment. And whilst uh, Nick Frost was great in sort of general play, had a few good runs with the ball, got that charge down, made some big hits, uh, got some good offloads. He wasn't great in terms of sweeping and clearing out at the breakdown. And that's one of the areas which I think Darcy Swain particularly, Jed Holloway as well this year in Super Rugby, has been quite good at getting to getting to the breakdown quickly, getting over the breakdown and getting rid of those um, on-ball attackers. And that was one thing that we just were too slow at this game and we didn't adapt to that as the game wore on. <clears throat> I mean, we got to remember Nick Frost is 22. So he's 23 in October. Uh, so he's got a good kind of 10 years ahead of him to be able to increase oh, and his there's no, physicality. No, like it's not um, a personal... Oh, like I know. There's nothing know. in that. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying that was one of the areas and that yep. comes through experience and yeah. that's not his role. That's not his role at the Brumbies. He's not that, that type of player. No, um, that's what Caden Neville did quite well within the first game. And I think we really missed him after right. his injury, which yep. is odd to say, considering uh, he, it was his debut, obviously within the first match. And now we look back at that performance, maybe colored by the fact that we won, but then go, Hmm, maybe we needed his kind of his, his engine and physicality within that lock and maybe again the coaches knew what they were doing when they picked him yep yep exactly <laughs> um Stuart O has written in on Twitter and said lack of basic skills such as ball handling is worrying for the Wallabies some immature decisions in attack as well is anyone coaching them on these things Any well yeah obviously that? yeah obviously that's more of a comment than a question than any thoughts <laughs> um my quick thoughts are it comes with experience and big match experience, which we're lacking. Um, so we have so many players who maybe haven't had overseas experience within big um, 
cup matches and finals and that type of thing. And we got some very, very young players like Noah or maybe in a combination of youth and inexperience within those key influencing roles. So it's just a challenge for our players to be able to execute in those key moments, which speaks to the immaturity in attack. Yeah, and I think there was there were certain points in this game that the certain players, particularly the more experienced players like Nick White, um, made some decisions that had they got that opportunity again, they probably would not have made. Perfect yep. example is that penalty kick uh, that Owen Farrell goes to, to post, bounces off the post, Nick White ends up getting the ball. He then runs it out from his own 22. If he kicks it and clears it out, we've got a line out on sort of halfway or the 5-meter, 10-meter line. Whereas he ends up taking on the line, gets turned over, there's a resulting penalty. They then spin it wide and score a try. So that's where England got that um, that lead going into halftime. Potentially, we're looking at a different outcome had Nick White yep. just kicked it long. So there was again, that's into those sort of immature attacking decisions that will come uh, with more time at this level. Uh, yep. Gus writes, or Gus the Robusto, why did Dave wait so long to get Vunavalu on? Uh, I think, well, he spoke about this in a post-match presser, so listen to our pod that's going to be coming out well, alongside this one and you'll get your direct answer from Dave Rennie. The long and short, or the short version of it is that it's a really hard choice. The backs were playing, or the back three were playing really well. They weren't entirely certain of who to be taking off and they were monitoring the players' movement, energy levels, work rate, and all of them were tracking pretty fine. So it was a case of not... um, wanting to change something which maybe didn't need to be changed at that point is kind of what I picked up from what he was saying. Yep, agree. Uh, Matthew Sterling, to call a real long shot, who'll be the most significant player from this series to show up with sustained performance at Rugby World Cup? Ooh, uh, Parecki, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, he's been one of the shining lights within this. Maybe Angus Bell, but I don't think he had as good a series as Parecki. So if we're talking about quality performance in this and further improvement or impact in the World Cup, Parecki in my mind. Um, if we're looking at the player who has the most significant impact in this series and should be standing up at Rugby World Cup, I can't go past Marika Korobedi or Samu Karevi. I think both of those players are going to be very integral parts of uh, Dave Rennie's plans for the World Cup. Yep, good call. All right, uh, last few ones, Bart Willis sends in his question and he says he doesn't know what to do about Tupo getting pinged in the scrums. Both games, the ref has gone in 100% looking for him to do something wrong, ignoring everything else. England losing binds, etc. Last night, but Tupo kept getting it done. Or kept yeah. getting done. Don't think we saw a single replay of those penalties so hard to view as a Wallabies fan. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I thought there were a couple of times where we were pretty hard done by. Um, like we already mentioned, there was one um, straight to long arm where we got, or full arm, where um, the British, the English front row like literally stood up and then we got pinged for it. I just don't understand how that's the case. Um, and there were a couple of times where the um, English, I think it was Will Stewart, dropped his bind, like just flat out lost his bind and then Slipper got pinged. And I'm like, why? Why are we getting hammered for that? So it seemed that the ref had a particular uh, perception of the Wallaby scrum, which is disappointing because it's an area that we have improved on over the last couple of years. And um, I don't think it was fully deserved. 
Uh, maybe Nella needs to front up and be a little bit straighter, get his feet underneath him more, supporting his weight, and then as the engagement occurs, start angling in after the point of contact and try. I mean, I know you're not meant to, but he does it anyway. Um, maybe it's a hard one to to gauge. I really would like to speak to somebody else who knows the dark hearts a bit better than I would on that on that question. And again, I think that comes back to that point we mentioned earlier in the game about not adapting to the way the game's unfolding and and also mm. that uh, communication with Michael Hooper and the referee. Yeah, uh, yeah. The Wallabies didn't adapt. And you highlighted that point with Preki having that conversation with uh, the referee in, I think it was like the 35th minute. I'm pretty sure it's when... Uh, they were like, no, Owen Farrell was lining up that shot of goal that ends up coming off the post and back into uh, Nick mm. White's arms. He's having that conversation about, and he, Parecki's communicating what he's doing. So he was saying, I'm holding off and giving them space to get set before I engage in that space. Um, and the referee's like, that's not what I want you to be doing. That's not what I'm seeing. And in some ways, I, I thought it was great that Parecki was having that conversation, but he wasn't really asking the referee what he can be changing to, to show the picture that's going to get the referee what he wants to see. He was being yep. defensive. And so that's why you probably need to start taking on what the ref's saying and say, yep. okay, next scrum, I'm not going to do that. I'll just do what I always do and see if that changes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, last question that has come in from Hugh96, and he asks, no Karevi, no Parisi, sent up very light on with Paisami and Nikitao. Who comes in? For Ketty, who else? Should have selected Simone. Uh, personally, I don't think we should have selected Simone because he won't be an option moving forward. So don't give him a game time now when he won't be available after this. Uh, Lalakai Fichetti, in my mind, should be a part of the squad and then be um, an available option depending upon an injury and stuff like that. Like we mentioned earlier, he, without a doubt, has been the best backline player uh, in terms of the consistency of his performance across the Pacific Nations Cup. And he... Yeah, will be the one that, in my mind, should be the one to move across into the Wallaby squad. Yeah, exactly. But and I think realistically, we don't have injuries in the centres at the moment. We do have Karevi not available through selection for Birmingham. But outside of that, Lenny Kitao and Parisi, Parisi. Well, we, yeah, sorry, we've got Parisi, but he was already a um, a second choice. Like we've still got Hunter Paisami and and Lenny Kitao is both yeah. fit and able for selection at the moment. With Parisi, who's only got out last week, it, it makes more sense to have Fichetti playing in Australia and getting that game time instead of being that mm. fourth choice option holding yep. tackle pads in Australia. So yep. um, we might see him come in when the rugby champs comes around, like we've said, and it'll be interesting to see if they do go with that or whether they just try and stick with the uh, Hunter Paisami Lenikitao combination and just get through those two Argentinian tests before yeah, having cool. Karevi back for South Africa. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end of the locker room. It also brings us to the end of this podcast. We have been going on for a while. So for all those that have got to this point, well done. Thank you again to Michael Atkinson for getting involved with us this evening and giving us his time. It was great to hear from him. Um, Let him know on Twitter what you thought about his, uh, his Samu Karevi, sorry, his, Marika Korombeki, number 12 12. selection. Um, Definitely give it to him. We'd love to see what the fallout (laughs) is around that. How good. All right. Well, thanks again, mate. Been great to be here with you. Everybody else have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye.